suggest you uh, get your notebooks out because much of tonight's material will appear on the blue book examinations which follow this semester. <laughs> Which means uh, you better be on the stick tonight. Uh, uh, now, wait a minute. I just uh, Excuse me while I light my uh, totally hip pipe. I mean, you got to get things right. Look at that thing, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there he is. The stylish. We'd like to, uh, before we get uh, deeply underway here tonight, you know, before we get totally involved in the, uh, in our uh, Kierkegaardian uh, roamings. Plymouth Duster is a rare breed of economy car because it is small enough yet still big enough. And along with other Plymouth compacts, Duster's a leader in its class in resale value. But what's rarer yet is Duster's quality. Quality that shines and shows in every line. Some years are good car years. Others are vintage years. When you see Duster, you'll know. 71 has been a vintage year for Chrysler Plymouth. 71 the years that have come before you. And now it's final clearance. Chrysler Plymouth, coming through. Chrysler Plymouth, right for you. Chrysler Plymouth, coming through. I got a great letter from a pilot the other day. Uh, he's a he's an Air, American Airlines pilot, and he said uh, whenever they're out uh, flying at 38,000 feet. He says they, he and his buddy, who's his co-pilot, he says when everything is working fine, he's got everything under control, he says they switch over to their ADF channel. And do you know what the ADF channel is on a... Well, the ADF, you see, is, is a system of... Uh, well, it's, it's a direction-finding system. And on that system, they can tune in broadcast receiver, broadcast stations. And uh, they, they hone in on a broadcast station. He says we hone in on WOR. Uh, yeah, that's right. And he says, we are flying, he says, maybe at 35, 38,000 feet. And he says, we're thousands of miles from WR. He says, we may be out over San Francisco. He says, they come in like a ton of bricks up in this uh, upper atmosphere. It's way up there, see. And he says, we can tune in everything. And he says, and all of a sudden, in comes Shepard. He says, you come drifting into our cockpit, he says, at 38,000 feet. And we're flying out over the Rockies. He says, an eerie sensation. He said, all around us, and we see the blinking lights of our control panels. And he said, and the other night, you did a show about flying. And he says, suddenly, everything in the cockpit was transformed. He says, for the first time in weeks, he said, my co-pilot sat up straight in his seat. <laughs> he says, he slumps a lot. And his mother's often worried about that because, you know, it does things to your back and that. He sat up straight, and he says, and for 42 minutes... We listened to your saga of your first solo. He says, we sat there. He says, you know, you're absolutely right that the first solo that a man makes, or, but there's only one first solo, let's face it, the first moment you fly an airplane off the deck by yourself is a moment that is absolutely unforgettable. Do you agree, Bob? It's an unforgettable moment. And, 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 and there's a, this terrible instant in your mind. See, and he wrote back, he wrote me, and he says, Shepard, he says, I've got to have a tape of that show. He says, because hardly anybody who's a non-flyer can understand what it feels like that moment. He said, you reproduced it exactly. He said, that instant when the plane leaves the ground and the ground falls away and you have this momentary sensation that you don't remember anything about it. Why? Well, you, all the instruments look like little blobs with needles flicking. He said, you keep looking at the clock, trying to figure out what your altitude is. <laughs> he says, it's a terrible moment. And yet, on the other hand, it's a fantastically exhilarating moment. It's the first moment of total freedom in a man's life. And you, 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 do you know what I mean, Bob? And I thought of that when you walked in. I thought that you, did you solo in a PT-17? The Great Lakes. Yeah, beautiful biplane. It is one of the most beautiful aircraft ever built. And uh, this this airplane, then when you walked in, I remembered remembered your stories of flying the seventeen, which was a, 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 called the Yellow Peril by some people. 
It was it was always yellow. Was the one you flew bright yellow? Ah, uh, yeah, of course. It had two wings. One wing, yeah, blue. The blue, the body was blue, and the wings were yellow. Lovely little aircraft. And you know why they painted them that color? Because students were flying them, and they figured. <laughs> And they wanted to make sure that no matter where the student flew it, into the top of the poplar trees, or he flew it uh, 280 degrees off of his expected course and flew it out to sea, they could see him. See, so his airplane was painted a bright, bright yellow. It's a, it's a, almost a, it's, it's a day glow yellow almost. Beautiful, clear, bright yellow. And I'll never forget the, the first time that I saw the PT-17. And uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the PT-17 is a classic airplane today. In fact, uh, if you can find a good PT-17 that is, you know, reconstructable, it's as, it's as valuable as a classic automobile. And there are some still around flying. The first day I saw the PT, so, so long, Bob, it's a pleasure, really. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, the, you know, it's... it's a, it's, it's a funny thing how certain people remind you of certain things. Now, when Bob, uh, Bob Smith, the, the general manager of WOR, just walked into the control room, most people, you know, seeing the boss, would be reminded of their paycheck, or they would be reminded of the fact they're liable to get a pink slip any minute. The minute Bob walked in, I was reminded of the PT-17. He's an ex-flyer. And, of course, there's no such thing as an ex-flyer. No, there isn't. There really is not. Uh, any more than there's no such thing as an ex-mother. Uh, <laughs> you cannot... Uh, you cannot you, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a condition of man that you cannot... Uh, you can't resign from. Uh, you cannot resign from having once flown. You can, all, you can say that he's an inactive flyer. You can say he's a flyer who is not flying. But to say a man is an ex-flyer is, is nonsense. There's no such thing as an ex-flyer. And if you have an old man around your house who once flew B-17s uh, or something, he is still a flyer. And incidentally, he knows a lot about life <laughs> that, the, that he is never able to, to, to transmit to you because when you've once flown an aircraft, yes, when you've once really flown an aircraft off the deck and you've been in charge, you've flown this machine, it is something which uh, is, well, it's an indescribable moment, and it changes a man forever. Forever. He can never go back. He can never return to the innocence that he once knew. And uh, have you ever noticed around pilots' eyes, there's an odd look around the eyes. Pilots and doctors have the same look around the eyes. Now, why? Well, because a doctor knows something you don't know. He knows about mortality. You suspect it at times, but he knows. And uh, he, it changes the, the look in the eye of a man. He, uh, he has a very different view uh, for, of the world than those who are the innocent. Now, what about pilots? Well, a pilot has pretty much the same reason. <laughs> he, has, he has an intimation of mortality, and he realizes how frail man is. And uh, why he realizes it? Well, because I think when you fly an airplane, you, see, you also see this look in the eyes of certain kinds of sailors. Because once you deal with basic forces, you know something about man. You learn about man from the fact that you have wrestled with a tornado. Oh, man, do you. And uh, the average city guy, I mean, the guy who's lived all of his life, and this is one of the reasons why so many students can be so very blithe about things, because many students have never faced any of the great forces. In fact, few students have. I mean, the really great forces. Uh, I'm talking about the vast forces of nature, which you cannot uh, picket out of existence. Uh, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to, no matter how many signs you print, Hurricane Myrtle is still going to blow you 400 miles into the Gulf, friend. <laughs> and it is not going to give a damn about it when it does it. And uh, no matter how much you may shake your fist at the heavens, uh, man has an allotted time on Earth. And it is there. That's something the doctor knows about. He's very aware of it. Now, uh, on the other hand, what about the pilot? 
Well, the pilot learns something about uh, these forces, and he has to, he can't ignore them. Most of you, day by day, can ignore gravity. For example, you just walk around, you don't, you don't think about gravity. How many of you ever think about the direction of the wind? This is in the pilot's mind all the time. How many of you think much about the velocity of the wind? It's in a pilot's mind constantly when he is flying. How many of you think that any minute now you may have to abort? What would you do? Well, now you're walking along 6th Avenue. You never always constantly in your mind have an escape hatch going, do you? Well, this is not so of a pilot. The pilot, one of the first things he learns is as he, he may look very casual. He's flying along, you see, and he's looking out. You see him flying. He's, he's looking out of the windshield. And uh, he's, he's leaning back in his bucket seat, and he may be having a cigarette, and you think, now, there's a guy, he's got on top of it, you know, he's cooling it. But all the while, in his mind, he sees a constant parade to either side of him, a marching parade of potential landing sites. All the time. Did you know that, Jerry? On top of that, he is always calculating uh, how high he is above the earth and how far he can glide and how long he can glide if he loses all power, which is very important. You see, if, if, if uh, your escape field is nine and a half miles away and you can only glide eight and a half miles, it ain't no escape field. <laughs> I mean, it's just a field, that's all. And so all the while he's calculating all these things. On the other hand, he's also calculating constantly in his mind at any given altitude what the wind velocity and direction is. And it's invisible. And so as you're sitting in that, that big jet plane flying along, uh, most people are totally unaware of the forces that are working on this thing. And at the altitudes that they fly, are you aware that at the altitudes that a jet plane flies, let's say the average uh, cross-continental jet you get in this jet, and they're flying at 38,000 feet, do you have any concept of the the uh, the the, the, the Wind velocities at that altitude? Well, I will say that they quite often exceed 100 miles an hour. That's called the jet stream, which you hear Dr. Frank Fields talk about occasionally. But that jet stream whistles, man. Now, it may be behind you, it may be in front of you, it may be coming from the side, but no matter where it comes from, and no matter how fast you go, it is exerting a vector force on you. It's exerting a big force. And so the aircraft is constantly the pilot, of course, and it's all computed and everything else, he's constantly checking and making uh, adjustments for that vast wind that is blowing him one way or the other, continually. Uh, he's always conscious, of, not like you take your automobile, how many of you are continually conscious of the fuel that's in your car? You are. Well, that's because you're trying to drive it all the time with a gallon and a half in it, friend. <laughs> And, you know, you know, you could always tell pilots, for one thing, the, the average pilot, when he drives his car, I didn't intend to do an airplane show tonight, but the average, and I'm not, by the way, this is not be, but the, people are fascinated by flying, and, and they should know something about it. You know that the average pilot, after he's gotten involved in flying a good deal, he does things uh, by pure, uh, well, learned reflex, uh, by responses that he automatically has. So when I go into a gas station with my car, I never ask for anything less than top it off. Now, why is this? Is it uh, because Shepard is profligate, uh, you know, and he's got all that dough and he can spend it? Yes, he's got dough, that's right. Is it because he likes to throw it around? No. It's because as a pilot, you automatically think in terms of topping it off. And so when an aircraft is, is refueled, unless you have, you have uh, certain gross weight problems, which is something else, you generally say, top it off, so that you know exactly how much fuel you've got, and you like that big overage involved. Now, uh, anyway, this letter from these, these pilots was great because uh, uh, he said that we listen to you in the cockpit. Now, I'll, I'll tell you even more than that, in case you're curious uh, about uh, people listening to you. That doesn't mean he's not in a, uh, he's inattentive. <laughs> no, not at all, because quite often... Uh, uh, in in the aircraft, they will tune in a, a a radio station like WOR, some big radio station, and they will continually check their ADF and their other navigational aids against that particular uh, known spot. They know where WOR is, and so we're here on the East Coast, you know, and uh, we're broadcasting at fifty thousand watts, 
and we're putting a lot of power into the air. And uh, quite often I'll get letters, say, from Paris, for example. Or uh, I even got a letter here not too long ago from a, from a guy in Brussels, a, uh, a pilot who was flying his aircraft, an, an American pilot, who tracked us all the way to just over the Brussels airport. And he says as we came down, as we descended into the landing, pad landing pattern over Brussels, he said we could hear the signals slowly fading out until when I hit... And he, he gave me the exact uh, the exact altitude that he lost WOR. You curious? He lost it as a, at exactly seventeen thousand feet as he began to descend into Brussels. And he said at that point we we uh, you just faded right out. He says, but you were coming in like a ton of bricks over the continent. And it was on a Saturday night show, incidentally, he was listening to. So uh, right now there are probably pilots. Who knows how many thousands of miles away who are listening to the show? Well, if you are, you're listening to... Oh, by the way, speaking of pilots, I'll do a little more on, on airplanes here, if you don't mind. That A little milestone was just passed uh, that went probably un unrecorded by the press and quite conceivably even by most of the aviation press. A little milestone last month was just recorded. They just issued the two millionth airman certificate and uh, since they began to license pilots you know in the early days Orville Wright didn't have to apply for a license you know <laughs> and uh, they didn't they and, and in those days you know in, in the early days of flying really the early days that the guys would get certificates from various flying schools and structures and so forth and uh, you'd have this uh, this flying thing that would be signed you know who one of the great teachers was in the original days of flying was Orville Wright and that there are people around, still alive, who have flying certificates that have been signed by Orville Wright. They learned under the master, you know. And so uh, it wasn't until somewhere around the mid-20s that they began to actually issue government-issued airman certificates. That's what a pilot's license is officially called, airman certificate. And they just issued the two millionth airman certificate. And uh, they were both for the same rating. The, the first one, Airman Certificate Number 1, was issued in, 19, I believe, 1927. Can you imagine having Number 1 on your license? <laughs> and, and it was a private pilot. Uh, and it was it a was private pilot license. And uh, Airman Certificate Number 2 million was just issued, and it was issued to a Navy lieutenant who had gotten his private pilot license, and it was Number 2 million. Mine is number uh, something like 1,800,000-something. I could give you the exact number, but it's not important because all pilots carry that with them, but it's 1,800,000-something. So you can see at what point I got my pilot's license. And uh, to, own the, to own an airman, so you know that you're licensed for life then, you know. Uh, this is something most people... That doesn't mean that you're, you're, legally, uh, you're, you're legal to fly for life. You are licensed for life. And uh, you must be re-examined periodically, physically re-examined, uh, depending on the class of license you have. They have a stringent uh, physical examination that the pilot must pass periodically. Not by his home family doctor either, by the way, but by an FAA doctor. Uh, and then uh, you are reissued a medical certificate, which you must carry always with your uh, airman certificate. Now, the airman certificate... Uh, the basic certificate is basically a private pilot's license. It, it isn't really called that. Uh, it's called uh, Single Engine Land, S-E-L, if you're curious. That's Airman Certificate, Single Engine Land. And uh, after that, then any notations that are made on that certificate are additional qualifications. For example, if you uh, uh, obtain uh, an instrument rating, that is then added to your license. You may then obtain a, uh, let's say, a multi-engine rating, which is added to your license. Then you may get a commercial license, which is really added to your basic licenses. It isn't a new license, really. It's a, it's a basic uh, addenda to your original license until ultimately you can go all the way on up and get what they... The ultimate license is an ATR, in case you're curious. An ATR is the Air Transport Rating, and uh, that is uh, issued under certain very stringent, uh, uh, long and vowel preparations. But, you know, getting back to the P-17, PT-17, this, this is the airplane that thousands and thousands and thousands of military pilots 
uh, trained on. And they trained on this airplane well up into the 50s, I believe, something like that, the early 50s. But uh, it's a beautiful little aircraft. It's a, it's a classical biplane, nothing to do with World War I-type airplanes. Most people tend to think of the biplane as an old-type aircraft. It's merely a different type. You know, they still build biplanes, not as curios, but as a specific type of aircraft. And the uh, biplane, for example, is still considered the premier aerobatic aircraft. And so you'll find many magnificent airplanes that are flown today in aerobatic competition. Incidentally, that brings up another uh, subject. Am I boring you about this stuff? You know, a lot of people don't know about flying. Do you know that one of the fastest-growing, uh, highly skilled sports in the world is the skill uh, that, that it takes to be a qualified aerobatic pilot? And, uh, boy, this is unbelievable, oh, what some guys can do <laughs> with an airplane. If you've ever... Do you know who the U.S. champion is? Many of many of you don't know. In fact, he's, he's one of about a half dozen men in the world that are world-class aerobatic pilots. World-class. And uh, they have world competitions. And uh, some, of the, some of the leading aerobatic pilots in the world are Russians. But the big difference is this, that the Russians, of course, like most of their... Uh, like most of their uh, sports, have government backing. In other words, uh, uh, you may be a, uh, an airplane pilot uh, who works for the Army or the Navy over in Russia, and you will be singled out for aerobatic training, and you'll be given all this tremendous equipment and money and, and so forth involved until ultimately you become a great world aerobatic flyer. But, of course, it is, again, government subsidy. But our, our pilots are not. Uh, they they uh, simply fly on their own, and you can imagine what a fantastically expensive hobby it must be. They are not rich men, by the way. The, the particular man who happens to be the leading aerobatic flyer in the United States is uh, anything but a rich man, but all of his, it's all funneled, you see, and he is considered one of the great geniuses in the air. Fantastic pilot. He's as at home in the, in the, in the air as, let's say, uh, oh, let's take, uh, as Tom Seaver is on the mound. And in, in many ways, even more so, because... And by the way, no good aerobatic pilot is really an, a top pilot, top aerobatic pilot, until he's in his early or middle 40s, because it takes that much training, that much tremendous uh, experience, uh, that much knowledge of wind and currents, and that much knowledge of aircraft and machinery. You just can't simply learn it. <laughs> it's something you have to absorb, you know. So it's just like there's no 12-year-old uh, pitchers that win World Series ball games. Just ain't going to happen. This is WOR New York. Here's a song you've heard before. We've been singing it and saying it because it's our pledge to you. Our pledge is to bring you the kind of cars you want, not only in styling, size, and price, but in quality that shines and shows in every line. Like in our full-size Plymouth Fury and even bigger-size Chrysler Royal. Cars you can live with for many years to come, because while some years are good car years, 71 has been a vintage year for Chrysler Plymouth. 71, the years for you. And now their final clearance priced. Chrysler Plymouth, coming through. But uh, do you know the name of the great pilot that is our, currently our U.S. world champion? He's a fantastic pilot. He's considered one of the, great, one of the greatest uh, aerobatic pilots to ever be developed in the United States. I'll let that, uh, I'll let that settle there. <laughs> you know, speaking of the PT-17... I'm, uh, I was, uh, the first time I ever saw PT-17s, I was a kid, see, and, uh, my old man, uh, one day he says, listen, he said, we're gonna go, we're gonna take a trip, he said, we're gonna go out and, and, uh, and we're gonna look at the airplanes. He loved to go and look at airplanes at the, at the airport. Well, we went out to this airport, which was a different airport than we usually went to. We went out to the airport, and they were having a public day where people could come, just the ordinary public, and, uh, that day... We went up to the to the naval air station that was attached to Great Lakes. You know the Great Lakes training station there, the big Navy base, and uh, they have a they have a naval air station there that's attached to it. 
And we drove up there. My, my old man was one of these guys. Who, I'll, I'll never, I'll tell you one thing. I will, I will always be thankful to him for one thing. He, was a, he went to everything that was free. And I might uh, point out, I suspect that many of you suspected it but never quite articulated it, that almost all the free stuff is generally the stuff that ultimately is the great stuff of our time. That uh, by free stuff, I mean, if you, if you, get, uh, if you attend a gigantic parade, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, 50 years from now there will be pictures in the paper that says gigantic parade that was held to uh, protest at, etc. in the 1970s. And there you were, you know. You were actually there. Uh, and so the old man was always, he'd always look on a paper about Friday night and figure out what's going to be free, see, that he could go to. And he loved, by the way, he loved traffic jams. Uh, yes, I mean, there, let's face it, there are some people who are at their best when they are in their, in, you know, mired, hock deep in problems. And the old man loved traffic jams. He would, and he would, he would love, he, some of his great stories were about, you know, traffic jams that he had survived. You know, it's like, Old soldiers that talk about great battles that they were in. You know, the old man, he'd say, I remember him sitting here talking to Uncle Carl. He said, what, Carl? That's nothing. And Carl would look a little crushed because he knew he was talking to the great traffic jam fighter of them all, see? He'd say, that's nothing. He says, you think you had a traffic jam out of diversity? That's ridiculous. Did I ever tell you about the time I went to the All-Star game in the uh, in Soldier's Field? That traffic jam lasted for over three weeks. As a matter of fact, there were some men sitting there when the first snows came down. And they were... And, you know, of course, poor old car would be in tears, and the old man would go on and on about how his car ran out of gas four times, just making it, you know, in that 34 miles in the traffic jam, and how, uh, oh, you know, he'd go on. Like, there would be three model changes of certain cars before the guy got home, you know? But uh, nevertheless, he, he loved great tra traffic jams, and so... I, one of my most uh, clear memories of my father was always sitting in the back seat of the car with sweat running down his back and him hollering out the window of the car. You know, it's somebody else. <laughs> and that's one of my most clear memories of him. And there, there it is, you know. And, and he was a fantastic, uh, well, he was, he was a guerrilla fighter, you know. And, 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 and as a guerrilla fighter, he knew the terrain. He knew the country. He knew all shortcuts. He knew he knew exactly how much he could pull. He knew exactly you know how he could how he could uh, make it around this. What gas stations you could cut through without getting busted? And uh, he oh he's great you know. And uh, he would have been a fantastic ambulance driver. But the old man you see sitting in the front seat hollering. And when all else failed, his head would go out the window and this long low purring humming stream of magnificently controlled profanity would begin to ooze out over the neighborhood, see. And you could see other veterans. The old man would once in a while see another veteran that he, he recognized, you know, from a traffic jam several months before. He'd see you know, he'd see some guy's Pontiac with the hood up and the smoke coming out. He'd say, hey, there's that guy that we saw. Remember the time we went to the beach? There he is. Hey, oh, And they'd holler back and forth, and, you know, they'd exchange stories and so on. I'm, you know, in fact, they even used to have battle patches, you know, these guys... Yeah, <laughs> you know, they put on their driving sweater, you know, like uh, the survivor of the big uh, July 4th uh, Oak Park Beach traffic jam, which is still talked about in Chicago, legendary, you know. Some people never got home. It's just they were lost forever, you see. And uh, <laughs> so he, he lived, you know, in traffic jams. But nevertheless, he, he took us to this place out there by, uh, by uh, Great Lakes. And, of course, it was a fantastic traffic jam because all the other freeloaders in the world were there. And uh, we were lined up for miles, and you know, it's at 6 o'clock in the morning. He always went in the crack of dawn to be... He wanted to be first in the traffic jam, you know. He wanted to really get in the middle of it, you know. So he would be in the middle. You see a great sea of cars, Oldsmobiles, Pontiacs, Hudsons, and everything else all around. About every 24th car, there was always one with the hood up, with great clouds of steam coming out of it, and a little fat guy running around with, with rust all over his vest, you know, yelling like mad. <laughs> kids crying, and of course, instantly, like the vultures, uh, wherever there's a great crowd of cars, always, immediately, the guys with these little, uh, these little ice cream things show up. They're like vultures, you know, going up and down between the <laughs> selling people, uh, you know, popsicles and the whole jazz, and the old man is sitting in the car all the time, and we finally got onto the field, or at least in this fantastic parking lot that was attached to the field. Tremendous. Oh, you know, it was, it was on the country there, see? 
And up above us, you could see this, these, these airplanes flying around. I'm flipping, and you know, immediately I'm flipping. Kids automatically relate to several things. Uh, airplanes. There's no kid alive that doesn't relate to an airplane. Automatic. And regardless of sex, automatically you, you, uh, you flip over airplanes. Uh, kids automatically flip over horses. Automatic. I mean, I've never seen a kid not look at a horse. It's automatic. Uh, kids also automatically flip over gi- large dogs. Very large. <laughs> you agree with me there? Large dogs. These are very basic elements. And so when you can get them all together, horses, dogs, and airplanes, you really got a mess. But that ne- <laughs> nevertheless, the airplanes are flying over, and the old man flies. You know, we jump out of the car, and we get into this tremendous crowd. Gee, a fantastic crowd. And there were guys, it was such a great crowd that, the, uh, that they, they were selling periscopes. You know, where <laughs> you could stand in the middle of this vast mass of humanity and look up. Of course, that was immediately defeated because everybody bought a periscope. And here, there you were. You were looking at the back of the next guy's periscope is what you looked at all afternoon. So as a kid, see, I, was, uh, I would occasionally climb up the side of my old man, you know, like you climb up a tree. And I would sit on his shoulder or something. I'd look up, and I remember seeing these little yellow airplanes. They looked like, uh, they looked like airplane models beautiful little airplanes and they were flying them in, in formation uh, they would come down and, and making landings in formation they had these big uh, great runways and actually it was a tremendous field as, as you might know you know it's a naval field and these guys were doing formation landings is the thing I remember they come down in a big V just drift down in a V and of course everybody's looking and they they had these smoke pots which they were using, you know, to give you a little more pizzazz, you know, a little more dramatics. And the smoke pots would be drifting. You saw these eight planes or seven planes coming down this V formation. They drift, and they would all touch just simultaneously. Fantastic. And the crowd would cheer, see? And they would roll out, and then they would uh, they were doing touch and goes. And uh, they would roll out maybe two, three hundred yards, and then they would all go up again as a, as a group. Flipping, the old man is sweating and yelling and hollering and sucking on a popsicle, and the, you know it was a fantastic day. So the PT seventeen, in case you're curious, and by the way, the PT seventeen is is an airplane that uh, is often used to fake World War One movies. Uh, many many movies when you see you know current movies, World War One type movies like the Blue Max and so forth. They'll have, uh, you'll see Folkers, or what you think are Folkers, and Spads, and Newports. And actually, a lot of them are PT-17s, or uh, kindred-type airplanes, which have been faked up. They put a fake cowl on it, and they, they put a fake tail on the back. And so when you see it in the movie, you're actually looking at, at, a, at a, a training plane, which was used, and is still used by... Do you know that, 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 uh, that only until very recently... This surprised a lot of people who may not know this. Until very recently, World War II fighter planes, authentic World War II fighter planes, were still in use as frontline fighters by several countries around the world, including the Messerschmitt 109. I'm talking about the famous, you know, World War One or rather World War II German fighter. And uh, did you did you any of you get a chance to see the Battle of Britain, which was a you know a movie about uh, mostly uh, World War II air combat and so forth? But uh, if you if you're if you're at all an airplane cuckoo, you would be interested in some of the airplanes they used in that, and probably you know all about them anyway. But most of those were taken from the Spanish Air Force, <laughs> you know, using them frontline DO 17s, Dornier 17 bombers, for example. And uh, it's it's uh, odd to think that you know a lot of this stuff is still being used. You know that 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 the that the old uh, the famous old Ford trimotor, which you've probably seen pictures of, is still in operation around the world. And I'm not talking about as a museum piece, but is actually being used in certain places. This will throw you. Do you know that that uh, uh, that the uh, last I believe it was the last quarter that the largest number of operational commercial flights compiled by a single aircraft, you know, they keep these records all over the world, in the, in the last quarter was by the DC-3. 
<laughs> now, do you know anything about the DC-3? A lot of people think of this you know, as, a, as an old... It is an old airplane, but the point is, it is still running, and there are people who predict... Uh, there are people who, in the aviation world who predict that by 19, by the year 2000, DC-3s that were built in the early 30s will still be running operationally and commercially. Now that's a, that, how's that for a piece of equipment that is genuinely a classic? And uh, I, in fact, uh, if you go out here to, if you drive out past Newark Airport, now when you take, let's say you go through... Uh, Take to take the Holland Tunnel. You go through the Holland Tunnel, you know, and you come up there by the Newark Airport, and you cut up there by Route 22 and all those areas where it says Route 1, when that big circle is. When you drive up there, take a look over at the uh, hangar area of uh, of the airport, Newark Airport. You will see parked right by Route 1 there a magnificent DC-3 that is owned by some company. It's a you know it's an operational plane, but it's just sitting right there. And this DC-3, by the way, was built in 1934. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's still operating. In the, so, so the airplane is, is not to be compared with the car. You know, the airplane is practically uh, has no real lifespan. I don't know how I got started on all this, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, there it is. Uh, that, that maybe a lot of you didn't realize that we are listened to by large numbers of pilots who hear W.O.R. at this time. How are you, men? I mean, <laughs> up there. Keep your airspeed up, boys. There you go, you know. Watch out for that turbulence, you know. Let's go. You know, hey, by the way, speaking of uh, turbulence, uh, how much time do we have, Jerry? Quick. Ten? Only ten minutes? Listen, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether I should say this for later or not, but uh, I've got uh, a very, um, uh, very uh, important note here to make here. That just came in for those of you who keep up on world movements, world events. Do you know what's happening right now, currently, at this minute? Well, right now, at this very instant, the lemmings of northern Scandinavia, whose two biggest mass migrations from their mountain pastures this century appear to coincide with world tension and wars are now on the march toward death again, right this minute. Now, did you hear the middle part of that, that uh, paragraph there? That oddly enough, uh, historians and people who look at things like that have noticed that the two greatest migrations of the lemmings in Scandinavia in this century occurred during World War I and World War II just prior to and they say now another fantastic migration has begun you missed that one didn't you <laughs> I mean this this is not trivia this is what's happening in the world friends this is the kind of stuff you never hear on the news you know and it's it's the sneakiest stuff you know you're constantly hearing a speech by a politician or by some uh, you know by some student leader or something like uh, some guy leading a strike or something but you never hear the, the really sinister stuff. The migration is begun. Hundreds of thousands of the small black and tan. Give me a little of that, uh, a little of that lemming music, the big lemming music. There it goes. No, no, that ain't lemming. No, no, kill it quick, quick, friends. If you think that's lemming music. <laughs> yes, they are marching. Hundreds of thousands of the tiny black and tan Arctic rodents are now streaming south, mainly in Finland. And they are moving out of the hills, out of the mountains, out of the great glaciers. Thousands and not, in fact, millions of lemmings tonight, this minute, right this instant, are on the march. They will drown almost to the last lemming in lakes, rivers, and then finally, the North Sea. The headlong suicidal rush which turns the usually timid, timid creature into a furiously aggressive and reckless cannibal takes place to some degree every few years. 
and is a spectacle without parallel in human life. The biggest migrations of modern times took place in 1918 and in 1938, just before the beginning of World War II. Think carefully about that, friends. When breeding conditions for the lemmings were excellent, they somehow sensed the war coming, and then... They moved. These animals whose powers of procreation are formidable are one of the few species of wildlife which suffer from stress, just like modern man. They hate being crowded. If world politicians choose to disregard the Lap legend, and it's an old legend among Laplanders, that the Lemming March is a bad omen, an omen of world disaster, perhaps the Suicide March should at least serve as a warning to urban planners. The periodic self-destruction is seen by scientists as nature's way of preserving the species when a population explosion threatens to exhaust the mountain vegetation on which they depend. And here's the most sinister, most evil part of it all. When the stampede starts, nothing, nothing can stop it. The lemming hordes pour through the countryside following natural geographic lines to the sea. They invade towns, destroy crops, pollute lakes and waterways with millions of their dead bodies. Those which have remained in the mountains, although ravaged by disease, malnutrition, and animals of prey, have a better chance of survival. The vast horde of lemmings that move in a great crowd die almost to the last lemming. So friend, if you're thinking, you mean 10 minutes again? So if you're thinking of moving to the big city, if you're thinking of packing up and coming to New York, forget it. In fact, uh, you know that, that, uh, that one of the problems that we're facing today in this country is a vast cityward movement you know, to, to, to look at the hippie world, you would, uh, you would suspect that it's the other way around. You know, the, 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 the communes and the countries and all that stuff. Not so. But every major city in the world is suffering from this vast horde of people who are coming to the city. It's like a migration. And these migrations have, occur have occurred at different times in history. For example... Uh, uh, there was a there was a tremendous migration just before the Civil War of people who who packed up and left and came to the towns. In fact, there's a, uh, <laughs> that, that there's a song written about that. You know that the, the one of the great songs of World War One was an Irving Berlin song that had to do with that exact phenomena. How are you going to keep them down on a farm once they've seen Gay Paris? And there is something about the life of the city which attracts millions of people without any reason. It's, it's inchoate. In fact, the other day I was riding in the back seat of a cab and I was with a Puerto Rican cab driver. We got talking about that. And, uh, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a real bad day. We were in the middle of traffic, millions of cars on 6th Avenue and the smoke and the crud and the, and the drifting uh, haze of... Uh, of uh, carbon monoxide and cars on all sides and the heat and the whole bit, you know. He's sitting up there sweating and I'm sitting in the back sweating. And uh, he was he was uh, listening to the radio and we're looking out of the window, just sitting there, nothing happening. And I look up at the front. I, I always like to take a look at the, uh, the the hack license, the guy's name on the front there, see, and I says, hey, Jose. And he looks and I says, yeah. I says, Jose, what do you think it is? Oh, bad, very bad. And I said, uh, why did you come from Puerto Rico? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, have you ever, have you ever wondered, you know, back there, you, he said, you think it's, you're better now than you were then? 
even though you probably didn't make any money there? No. So worse, actually worse. So I got robbed last month twice. <laughs> Which incidentally happens among lemmings. That the that the that the crime problem ultimately is not really a racial problem nor a problem of poverty. I suspect that it's ultimately a problem of the lemming world that we live in. Just like the lemmings, which are very docile and kind to one another when they're living their normal life. The lemmings don't attack each other in normal life. The minute that millions of them are crowded together, they become ferocious cannibals. They kill each other relentlessly and eat each other. Remember, the lemming is normally a vegetarian. Now that's a very interesting thing to think about. That the that the uh, that the, the the more you crowd people together, the more you get them in one great vast horde of, of humanity. I suspect the more you're going to have the cannibal tendency. Now, how does how is man a cannibal? Well, he's a philosophical cannibal, not necessarily a literal cannibal. He doesn't necessarily sit down and eat the haunch of his next door neighbor. What he does is steal his bicycle. Well, what he does is hit him on the head and take his wallet. And so ultimately, the, 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 the problem that we're living in, you know, this fantastic city world that we're, we're evolving, this urban world, has many parallels in the lemming world. And of course, immediately a lot of people are going to yell that we're not lemmings. Yes, but we are animals. We may not be lemmings, but we're animals. And I'm going to get millions of tracks now. <laughs> Already I can see the tracks. That's spelled with a T-R-A-C-T-S. Millions of tracts are going to arrive assuring me that we are not animals and that we are some kind of a higher uh, rarefied being, which is not at all to be parallel with the animal world. In fact, you can look it up in the big book. It says right there that we're not. Well, that's, uh, that's highly questionable. In fact, I'm questioning it and flatly saying I believe we are animals. And uh, the burden of proof is up to the people who believe we're not. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the, uh, the, the tendency to cannibalize is a very obvious one. You get, you get large numbers of men together, and you are going to have stealing. This is a great problem, in, in, uh, in, for example, in the armed forces. You get, you get uh, 38 guys in the barracks. Inevitably, there's uh, three or four guys who suddenly take to picking stuff up. Which they wouldn't have done ordinarily in you know the ordinary life, just wouldn't ever occur to them. Uh, you get this in college dormitories. You get a whole bunch of guys together instantly. Four or five of them start doing things, and they, it's just a fact of nature. It's a fact of life. And uh, these lemmings, right this minute, you know, it, it's uh, here. It is, you know, it's a, it's a July night, and we're sitting here. In, uh, in July, and it's warm, and we're kind of civilized, aren't we, friend? And uh, <laughs> here we are. You, 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 you see, have you ever watched? Have you ever watched guys in a traffic jam? Man, they are absolutely—they'll kill each other. Uh, no, I'm see. Listen, uh, you learn this when you ever when you ever ride a motorcycle. See, uh, t- people tend to hide behind their cars. You you just see a lot of cars. But I've seen guys cut each other off. I've seen guys do things which are murderous things. I'm, because a car can be a murderous weapon. I've seen guys drive other guys right off the road in the middle of a traffic mess just to make, a, you know, another eight seconds of time. In short, their concern is far more. Uh, it overrides their general humanity, which they may have in their ordinary life. And the traffic jam is very close to a lemming migration. It's a great sense, and usually to the sea, oddly enough. Most migrations are, are water migrations of all animals. That if you find a great migration of animals, let's say in Africa, they are migrating because the water has, 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 has disappeared and they are migrating towards a great river. And now, a little more lemming music, please. Right at this minute. There are millions and millions of cars coming home or going to involved in a vast seaward, lakeward 
riverward, waterward migration. Just like the lemmings, some of them will die in the process. In fact, large numbers of them will die in the process, according to the U.S. Safety Department. <laughs> and the lemmings march on, hurling themselves relentlessly into the sea. Good luck, lemming. You know, the lemming is closely related to the gerbil. Did you know that? <laughs> and... and uh, and more and more guys today, I mean, more and more sociologists today, are studying animal behavior. And I'm not talking about rat in a, in a maze behavior. They're studying animal uh, natural behavior in natural habitat to find out why man does the things he does. Now, that doesn't mean we can... You know, the assumption always follows that if we find out why man does a certain thing, we can do something about it. That is really one of the, I think, one of the, one of the great misapprehensions or miscomprehensions of knowledge. That to know that man is a is a uh, is a carnivore is not to be able to do something about it. I mean, if you know a lion eats meat, what are you going to do about it? I mean, even if the lion knows it, what's he going to do about it? And uh, so as we as we march on, uh, is that it now? I hear the bugles. You can't escape. You know, speaking of animals and bears and lions and all the rest of it, there's a little note here from London. Uh, one good note. A spokesman for Regent's Park Zoo said that as the result of London's clean air policy, you know, they've been having a whole thing about pollution over there, the polar bears are now whiter. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a good note. <laughs> Just the polar bears are now whiter. He says they used to be a yellowish, grimy color, despite spending most of their time in the pool. And now the London Regent's Park Zoo polar bears are beautiful, clean, crystal polar bear white. So who knows, you know, something is good in the wind. But uh, I want to say to the rest of all you lemmings, by the way, I don't set myself apart. I'm as much a lemming as the rest of them. It just happens that I'm a loudmouth lemming. It's not quite the same as the rest of you. You just, uh, you know, uh, you may be, well, uh, if the shoe fits, friend, uh, you know. W.O.R., New York, and now the news.